As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the ways that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to first-hand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how this crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to your customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com go slash food. Welcome to Why Food Podcast, the podcast about career changers, entrepreneurs, and innovators. I'm your host, Valerie Lomas. And I'm Ethan Frisch. And today we have a very special guest. We have Jesse Shafshek. He is a food writer and cookbook author, and his debut cookbook, Tasty Pride, just came out this month. Jesse, thank you so much for being on with us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Um, so I think we need to just like cut right to it. Like, let's talk about your book. It could not be more timely. Obviously, it's June where we typically celebrate pride. And this June has been a very unique and special um, month because we have this whole movement that's happening about really... I I mean, obviously, it's Black Lives Matter, but it's really about celebrating diversity. And I think it's kind of transformed into this all Black Lives Matter, because we have to talk, we can't talk about like, (laughs) equality without talking about um, diversity in the sense of queer people of color. So (laughs) can you tell us a little bit about how this book came to be? Yeah, of course. Um, Maybe two years ago, I was working at BuzzFeed. um, And the first Pride Month there, I tried to like utilize the platform really and interview chefs and do Q&As with different members of the queer food community. And I think it took a while, but I slowly started to realize like, oh, this audience is massive and maybe also this kind of content isn't produced as much as it should be um in this realm and so i started to think you know how can i push this even farther and so i came to my editor at the time like listen i have this ridiculous pipe dream idea but like what if we could and then i guess like one thing led to another and after about a year of back and forth and trying to figure out like the most responsible and equitable contract it came to be that's pretty incredible so it really was like your brainchild that birthed this book I mean, I always 
wanted to do this book. And I guess I was like, I will never work in a media company this big in my life. Like BuzzFeed is massive. So if I'm going to do this, I should at least ask if maybe I can utilize their platform. Right. And I think one unique thing about this book, because it's called Tasty Pride, um, at least compared to some of the other tasty cookbooks I've read, it really is different in that it has people's personal stories and it has this very real personal element. It has storytelling. It it evokes emotion. Um, was that something that was kind of seen as something that is really a part of the Tasty brand? And were, were there any like was did you meet any roadblocks in trying to bring this really personal narrative to this cookbook? Yeah, I mean, Tasty was always built on removing that, like that person. It's always just like hands and pans. So this definitely was um, different. And from the beginning, I always said, you know, if we're going to have these recipes, I think it's irresponsible not to have some storytelling element to let people say something about the recipes or say a story. Because with other cuisines, you know, like Italian food, you can point to like history and like geography to be like, oh, this is why these ingredients are common. But with like queer food, you it's not as easy to point to those reference those references you know so i'm like people need to tell their stories so the book has like a thesis and then when you flip through it the underlining theme is hope i love i love that and i just want to touch on something you just said you said queer food and kind of defining what queer food is this is not something we talk about enough because i think that the food industry in particular i think that a lot of um a lot of queer people have been have a natural inclination and are drawn to it. But like, what is queer food? I guess how would you define it, Jesse? (laughs) Sure. At the end of the day, queer food is honestly anything that's cooked by a queer person. Um, And then it gets tricky, like I was saying, because there is no, you know, one cuisine, which is also what makes it so incredible. So for example, with this book, it needed to have like every perspective culinarily because that shows that queer food isn't, you know, a set of ingredients or a set of flavors, but it is just a person cooking the food. Like it is the story behind the food on the plate. Like that is queer food. I love that. And Jesse, how do you feel like this cookbook and, and that theme of queer food, uh, like how how does that how has that run through your career and how have you expressed that in in other work that you've done? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I've only been in media maybe full time about four years, three and a half years, and ever since the beginning, I always wanted to highlight queer cooks and queer chefs naturally because I am one and. They are my mentors, they are my heroes, they are my friends, they're part of my chosen family. So that was easy for me. So with this book, I just wanted to continue that in a bigger platform. And I somewhat wanted to remove myself to, I have a recipe in the book, I honestly didn't want to have a recipe in the book, but I just wanted to help, you know, members of my community tell their stories. 
Jesse, who are some of your your heroes and mentors in this industry? Oh, there's so many. Um, I think John Birdsall is incredible. I think Julia Tertian, what she does with cookbooks and advocacy is just, if I do one-tenth of what she's accomplished, I will feel completely fulfilled in my career. Um, Elizabeth Faulkner, like her creativity with baking and desserts, just really, when I was a kid, I would read her book, Demolition Desserts, which is like this crazy book that combined anime drawings with recipes. I just thought this is incredible, and I had no idea why I was drawn to it, but, you know, like, skip ahead 20 years, maybe it's because I'm reading words and art that was from a queer chef. Hmm. And I want like one thing that I noticed in Tasty Pride and really all of the work that you do, Jesse, you always um, you don't just rely on what you know or chefs that are kind of in your circle. You always put out feelers and you ask for contributions to make sure that your work is really representative of the of the people in our country. And I noticed in Tasty Pride, it's like you didn't have to like go and, you know, like now that we're in this moment, right, of of really making sure that we're amplifying um, black, indigenous people of color, that we're amplifying their voices like your work already does that. So in this book, you have. Um, you have so many amazing people who contributed to it. You have um, like Ruby Tando. I want to make her miso brownies. You've got um, Chef El Simone. You have, um, I want to call her Kia Cooks. That's not her name. That's her handle. Um, but I plan to make her crispy chickpeas. Uh, so like, can you tell us a little bit about um like why that has always been important to you to make sure that, you know, the work that you're putting out is actually representative. Yeah, of course. Like from the very beginning concepting the book, I knew and I kept telling anyone who was also working on this, if the book wasn't inclusive, if it didn't show every different point of view, different people, different culinary styles, and there'd be nothing to be proud of. Like it isn't, it's not enough to be queer. I'm tired of, you know, queer food media being cisgendered white gay men. That's easy. That's safe. Obviously they have a platform already, but that's not what Tasty Pride was about. Tasty Pride was about putting people who are working, you know, behind the scenes in kitchens who are doing amazing things, you know, maybe in their community, they're well-known, but nationally, you know, they're not. So I want to put them right next to Anthony. I want to put them right next to Ted Allen. And truly, I just wanted to use this book as like, kind of like a shine theory. You know, if one person shining next to the other, the whole community grows together. So I just thought it was really important to have such a wide range of voices and personalities and culinary point of view. Um, I think that's such a great point, Jesse. And I think that model, like, to the extent that it can be replicated in food media, it should be because, um, like you said, like we all already know like who the Antonies are. Um, we like, but to put them next to someone who who might not have otherwise gotten a little bit of shine, and to kind of help uplift them and uplift their voice and uplift their platform, um, I think that's kind of like the greater calling of journalism in many ways. Um, and Jesse, even though like you have like thousands and thousands of like followers on social media and you create beautiful content, like I 
I do think in many ways you, you have the heart of a journalist because you always, you know, your focus seems to always be on sharing other people's stories. Um, so I just think you do that really beautifully in this book. And, um, in case people haven't figured it out yet, you should go and check out this book and buy it and cook from it. Yes. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Jesse, tell us a little bit about how you ended up at the juggernaut that is BuzzFeed. Yes. So after I graduated college, I worked in Chicago and I had some like oddball jobs. My first job was kind of like this menu consulting company and I would work doing R&D on menus for like Wendy's and Taco Bell was a big client and Domino's and so I didn't love it um and so then I jumped to a kitchen I didn't love it and I jumped to another R&D job and I was just I had no idea where I fit in in kind of the food world and I found a listing for a food writing internship at BuzzFeed in New York and I thought you know what maybe writing can make me happy so I moved from Chicago I was a culinary director I quit and I took an internship and luckily it paid off and that was like my entry point into media which I mean I understand like I was able to take a $15 an hour internship which is messed up to begin with so that model is broken but anyways (laughs) but Jesse was this your first internship in food media this was my second. I had an internship in college. We was called like a externship. It was a three month full time thing, and that was actually a Bon Appetit. Kind of before Bon Appetit is this internet sensation that it is now. You know, there was no social media really. There was no video, and we were also located in Times Square, the old Condé building. So it was a completely different staff. The only person who's still working there that I worked with was Chris. He was actually my direct boss during that internship. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was like, Chris is great. I was like, Chris is, like, Chris is great. <laughs> it's, I think it's really like telling though, that so like in a way there are like food media, there are only so many entry points into it. Yes. And it's also so New York specific, which I also don't understand because why do you have to be in New York City at a desk to write about food? You don't like someone in the Midwest can also do this job just working from home. Do you think that the like the the pandemic will affect food writing in that way? Do you think we're going to see like. Um, we're going to see voices that are that are represented outside of New York City, LA, San Francisco, outside of like the cool coastal hot spots where everything is really trendy, but like not necessarily how people are actually cooking at home. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope so. And it would only help these different media brands because our audience majority is not the coast you know we're writing for everybody so it would be in their best interest to get people who are actually consumers <laughs> yeah so um jesse where are you now because you're no longer at buzzfeed and no. why did you leave buzzfeed also yeah so um i left buzzfeed after the book was completely wrapped up it was safe it was done. There was no more edits. It had been photographed. Everyone had been paid. 
the deed was done and I spoke with the marketing people and I'm like, anything more we market this, I am working with you. I don't care. You have to email me everything. And my time with BuzzFeed just kind of came to an end. I needed to work in a more food-centric media company. So I got a job at The Kitchen. And so now I'm there. I'm the studio food editor, which is basically like this position that lives between art and editorial and like helps bridge that gap kind of. Oh, that's, that is pretty awesome. (laughs) I did not know that, that story, but did, so did you find it challenging? I know you said you waited till like everything with the book was like kind of wrapped up, but I mean, the book was just published. Did you have any concerns about publishing a book with a company that you knew you were leaving? Yes, totally. Um, It was really anxiety inducing. I mean, and it still is in some sense, but luckily we have this understanding, BuzzFeed and myself, and whenever BuzzFeed does something, they always run it past me for approval. And I'm still in constant communication with BuzzFeed, constant communication with the publisher. And I think that they just know that they can't do, they cannot put anything out into the world without first running it past me. <laughs> That's awesome that you were able to kind of like cultivate that relationship and you have that trust there. Um, yeah, totally. I've become really close with the, like the people in charge of marketing there. So that also really helps because, you know, if I see anything, I could text it. They could text me for quick approval. So it's really nice. And I think I think that trust element is something that when it comes to book publishing, we should like we don't necessarily talk about enough. I think we like as as cookbook authors and as writers, we kind of maybe need to talk about that a little bit more like that trust you have with your agent, with your editor, with the marketing, with all of these different components and how important that is like the success of a, of a book. Cause it is such a like massive undertaking with all of these moving parts. And as the author, you know, you're not necessarily managing it. Your editor is your agent is so, um, I think that's amazing that you you were able to kind of like cultivate and build that trust so that you could then, you know, continue with your own personal career path without having to, you know, question what's going to happen to this this baby that you birthed into the world, essentially. Yeah, cookbooks are such like a personal extension of your life. And they're also such a huge, you know, monetary risk that you take on so there's so much trust that goes into the book and so much could go wrong and I'm just like super grateful that I do have this working relationship now yeah okay we're gonna take a quick breath quick break but we will be back uh for more with Jesse Shufshek so stay tuned This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for those of us running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, which means the way they shop for food is changing. I've seen the shift happen at Burlap and Barrel, the single origin spice company that I founded with my friend Ori Zohar. Because we have an online store and we can ship orders, it's a safe and healthy way for home cooks to get spices delivered right to their doors. Now, people are more curious than ever about the ethics and sustainability around food, and it's a great opportunity for us to talk about Burlap and Barrel's social mission while growing our business so that we can continue to support our partner farmers around the world. If you run a restaurant, farm, or other small food business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is Square Online Store. 
lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep your customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all of your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers, no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash why food. And we're back. We're joined this week by Jesse Chefchek, who is a food writer and cookbook author and the author of the brand new uh, Tasty Pride cookbook. Um, Jesse, let's let's go back into your past a little bit. Uh, how did you how did you get interested in food in the first place? What, what was your sort of childhood introduction or, or inspiration? Yeah. So growing up, uh, when I was young, my mom started a candy business out of her home. She launched it. She got like her kitchen approved to be producing candy and selling it. So she would make caramels specifically. And I guess I just like watched her and eventually started helping her cook them and wrap them. And at the time, I didn't really know that, oh, maybe I'd go into like making sweets and baking for a living. But that kind of kicked it off. And then I went to culinary school. And then a few years later, I kind of reverted back to my sweet side. I'm like, oh, this makes sense now. Is, is her candy business still operating? Is uh... It is not. It was called Carmelot, and she made the most incredible caramels, awesome, but she man. doesn't make them anymore. I haven't had them in probably since like high school, actually. Jesse, do you make caramels or car- how do you say it? Car- caramel? How do you say it? I say caramels, but I don't <laughs> know if it's like a Midwest thing. I would say caramels, which sounds real Southern when I say it. Um, <laughs> I love it. Do you wait? How would you say it, Ethan? What's the New York way? Queens. Well, I, I think the Queens way. I think they're uh, like I think there would be two different things. Like to me, a caramel would be like the little cube of candy, you know, like wrapped in wax paper or something that you would eat. Whereas a caramel would be a sauce or a, a like a flavor in something else, like a caramel ice cream or a, you know. That makes I sense love to that. me. I love that, Ethan. You have like completely revamped the definition of of caramel slash caramel i have to say i i never really thought about this before but but to me they feel like different things (laughs) wait jesse do you you make as you call them caramels caramels um you know what not often but i published a recipe and like a little essay about my mom's caramels for food 52 and then i made like balsamic caramels with salt and it's funny because i told my mom after the fact that i like basically used her recipes inspiration tweaked it and her response was why would you put balsamic in my caramels (laughs) that is a great response um but like how like i feel like was she kind of like honored because it's like her recipe now gets to like live forever and be in a way like memorialized and it like it has its time stamp in history so now anyone who uses a variation, it's like documented, it's published that like, this is a variation of the way your mom did things. I think she definitely is. I feel like whenever something like baking specific or sweet specific comes out, like that I write, I think she's always excited to see. Oh, that's really, that's great. Um, okay, now I need, I need you to make me some, I'm just gonna say car- caramels. You can make, make even caramels. <laughs> I'll make you the the good one, the non-balsamic one. The balsamic sounds pretty good to me. Was the balsamic vinegar good in the in the caramel? I thought it was pretty good. Okay. I mean, it was it was good enough that I published it. 
Um, I also wanted to ask a little bit about the the business of cookbook writing and publishing. Um, and I think sort of connected to the bigger conversation that's ongoing right now in food media about money and who gets it and who gets to decide who gets it and and how it all gets allocated. Uh, what was and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm referring to Bon Appetit and certain contributors uh, being paid for their on camera time and, and others not. And often it seems like associated with the, the skin color of those of those people. Um, so tell us a little bit about how that worked with your cookbook and, and if you have any advice or recommendations along those lines for other people who are thinking about publishing their own books. Of course. So for Tasty Pride specifically, the money side of it was very important. It needed to be square away before I wrote the book. And if we couldn't, I was not going to write the book. That was my rule from day one. And to that, every single person, every contributor was paid. Everyone who touched the book was paid. And additionally, if there were some contributors who were like, oh, this rate's too low, um, all except one, I was able to meet them at the rate that they wanted. Um, Additionally, the day that it published, Penguin Random House and BuzzFeed each donated $25,000 to GLAAD. And I thought that these were both incredibly important details um and then so buzzfeed also 100 percent of royalties if it if that ever happens is going to be donated so it was important that this book gave back financially and reinvested in the community because if we want to see this representation continuing if we want to see these people doing great things we need to pay them i don't want a contributor cookbook filled with 75 recipes from people who quote donated them to me like that would not be something i'd be proud of i wanted to hire these people it was the first time i was able to be an assigning editor hiring editor i wanted these people to get paid that was one of the most important aspects of it and with glad it was a perfect relationship because the whole premise of the book is representation exposure utilizing a platform and Glad does exactly that. They work with media to make sure that there is representation, that those stories that are on TV, that are in music, whatever, are positive, you know, portrayals of the queer community. So it seemed like the perfect reinvestment. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, Jesse, you like this, this is, seems to be an integral part of your platform as a journalist, right? Um, because you know, I act, you actually interviewed me for, um, for a BuzzFeed piece. And then you started a column and, um, you are actually how I met Andre, um, who is the hot sauce founder, CEO, and face of Shaquanda will feed you. Um, so like when you were at, when you were at BuzzFeed and pitching that column, like, what was like what was that like because again it's like you kind of mentioned right like i think we do, we we have seen buzzfeed getting a little bit more into personal stories but like the the crux of the brand is like the hands and pans these videos that you can't stop watching and these you know these buzzfeed articles that are like there's a lot of lists and and that sort of thing so like how was it like kind of transitioning into these like really like important profiles of of culinary professionals who weren't necessarily getting media attention otherwise 
Yeah, I think with that, I was just like, I'm going to play this game. I understand, you know, the platform that I have, the privilege of working here, the amount of people can see these. So fine, I'll write five lists this week. But then on my off time, I'm going to write something that I'm passionate about and I'm going to put it out there. So I feel like I just played the game as much as I could, trying to get as many interviews and articles that I thought were really important for the audience to read and balancing them with the things that, you know, made money got traffic i think that's a really like nice way to segue into this like you you are essentially playing this game right you are this amazing writer in the food media world and i say amazing in in many terms of the sense like one your sheer volume of articles that you wrote when you were at buzzfeed was like it was like insane i don't know how how many articles were you writing a week like a hundred um sometimes it honestly felt like i was just talking about this um i was like writing some recipe and i was like i think i was trained at buzzfeed to just be fast like that's you're like unusually fast um but i actually you know i like forgot where i was going with this question um <laughs> well well jesse how about any any advice for aspiring food writers or uh, people interested in making a career shift to do to do something along the lines of what you've done Ooh, that's such a hard question because i wouldn't you know i can't recommend the way that i got into it because it's a broken system that's assuming that you can make 15 dollars an hour and be fine so i can't say that in good faith i how do you break in i mean i don't have an answer because i feel like the industry isn't at a place where we have an entryway for new voices to be able to come in so right i would say just start pitching places that you see publishing new voices places like the kitchen is really great about that places like food 52 is able i do a lot of essays by people with new voices and just pitch and if you don't have formal writing training or culinary training that's fine it doesn't matter the industry does not care about that you know what i mean so just just go for it yeah and okay so i remembered where where i was trying to segue and i think we can still segue there i want to talk about this idea of like people who don't necessarily fit the most traditional way that we think about when we think about food like having a place in food media because i think that's something a lot of us have struggled with like asking ourselves this question like do i have a place in this world of in this industry of food media is that something that you have asked yourself before and if so like where are you in that journey i mean constantly i feel like i mean media when you conjure up pictures of media you have this picture the stereotype of the people who work in there and oftentimes like when you look at Condé Nast it's that stereotype is proven true over and over again so like I don't feel like I fit into that crowd I don't want to first of all ew I never want to be like that um (laughs) but I think you also have to realize like the concept of like having a seat at the table fuck that there is no table that implies that someone owns you know there's ownership and power so let's not think of it that way and Everyone has a voice and a spot to be in food media. So I don't want anyone to question whether or not they belong because we need everyone's voice. So it finally is reflective of the food world. Right. 
Because the thing is, we all eat, right? Like, (laughs) we all eat. And like, historically, like the people who have prepared food and made food, it's not the privileged class. Yeah, totally. And the people who are working, like walk into any restaurant kitchen, it's not going to look like a Condé Nast office. Right. And then even taking a step further, the people growing the food, the people who are producing the food. Um, So I think, and, you know, Jesse, and it's, it's crazy to hear someone like you who has your name on a cookbook that just came out from a major publisher who like, I don't know if you did a Google search, you would probably come up with like 20,000 articles with your name under. And like, that's a question you ask yourself. And that's a question I ask myself um, because it's like in this industry, when you're, when you're hit with a lot of roadblocks, you can't help but sometimes wonder why. And it's like, do I have a place here? And I think that just like our existence sometimes in itself is like, is a statement, is an, is an act of, um, it's like an act of defiance in itself just by like sticking it out. Right. (laughs) Totally. And it's like that, that emotional like burden of being like constantly feeling like you don't fit or feeling like you know minorities have to try so much harder and their pitches have to be so much cleaner and more polished versus these other people who just you know like are being rewarded for doing the minimum you know they're taking recipes that are pre-existing for years calling it something different and then getting so much praise for it it does take a toll on you this emotional toll they're like okay, why, why is there this dynamic? Why do I feel this way? Right. The emotional toll is like so real. And I think that's not something that like we even talked about before, like three weeks ago, right? Even though many of us like felt tired and we felt exhausted from the emotional toll of like, you know, discrimination within like, not just this industry, but like in general, like it's not even something that like we talk about because, what it didn't feel like there was space to talk about it Um, totally and like i'm like a white cisgendered man so and i'm exhausted because i feel like i'm a representative of the queer food community so i have a, a job a day job i write recipes i get money that way but then additionally i have that emotional labor which i love and i'm so 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 honored to be able to speak for these people and be a representative but i can only imagine how much worse that emotional labor is for other people, you know, like queer trans people, for example, I can't even imagine how hardworking in food media would be. Oh gosh. I mean, yeah. And to think about that when it's, and when it's also like, you're just fighting for your survival, right? You're fighting to be acknowledged like on top of that, then it's like, oh yeah. And like in my heart, I have these stories I want to tell and I have recipes I want to create and I want to share with people like, Again, just like existing sometimes is like a radical act in and of itself. Yeah, and there's like no monetary compensation for that emotional labor in food media right now. Like if someone was writing like an article about queer food and then somewhere else like, oh, hey, Josie, do you mind just like looking at this? There's no compensation there. Right. Yeah. Right. And that and that is and now that we have even kind of like opened up Pandora's box about a lot of the free labor that's being done, like we haven't even like touched on the layers of that labor. Um, We're kind of just like touching on the most basic thing is like I'm literally producing and creating for a profit driven business, right? like actual product. We haven't even gotten into the layers of like what you mentioned of like um, 
of helping with like editing to make sure that like the tone is right. And, and you know, that, that expertise that you are uniquely situated to give and you should be compensated for. I mean, I think ultimately it just comes down to hiring more like BIPOC and like editor in chief positions or senior editor positions because they understand and maybe they'll be like, Hey, wait, actually if we're asking this person to be on a panel or something, maybe we should compensate them for that hour. And you just hit the nail on the head. Um, Joey Hernandez recently in like his Instagram stories, he shared something about like what, like what does real like sustainable, like equality and equity look like in our industry? And really, it was really applicable to any industry. And I think seeing certain people like seeing real diversity and like leadership roles, that is definitely something I think that could have a real lasting impact, Um, which is, I mean, I I think that we all have like a similar end goal of like a more equitable and just society, or at least I I hope that's all of our end goal. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Like if we're going to talk about like discrimination in the workplace and how to fix it, like why don't you put someone in charge who understands it, who's probably experienced it? Like they're probably your best bet. Absolutely. Uh, Should we finish with some rapid fire? Hang on, I just want to ask one more question, uh, I mean, to Jesse, but maybe to both of you, like, what do you see the legacy of this moment in, in culture and food media being? I mean, we, we, uh, obviously, people need to be compensated fairly, there, there are a lot of specific uh, conversations that are happening now as a result of all the BLM protests and, and uh, fallout of Bon Appetit. But um, where do you see this going? What's the, what's the, What's the goal, I guess? And, and what's the journey to get there? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, I, sorry. <laughs> sorry know, let me just, I, like, drop a huge question right at the end of the interview in case, uh, no, you, know, in case you thought we were, like, You can have a moment to think about your answer. Okay. When I hear Black Lives Matter, of course, this stems from stop murdering us police officers and whoever else, right? But I see it as a bigger picture of Black Lives Matter, see the humanity in Black lives. So that's why, like, on on my personal social media, you know, I'm just trying to show, like, this is one, one Black life and this is the joy that I experience in life and I experience through food. And this is me going to the garden with my niece, right? I just think that like, if we can see the humanity in one another, then for me, that's like, that's what Black Lives Matter means to me. And what that looks like in our industry would be just equity. And I know that is just like a lot to ask for. It's really, it's really radical. It's because, and I don't know, I'm probably saying way too much to the fact this is going to be on air, but like to have equity would mean that like, for, for some people to kind of maybe like be elevated to like an equitable status, it would be kind of like a rearrangement of everyone. And I don't think we're ready for that. I would be shocked if our society was ready for that. I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I hope that this movement makes some radical shifts in food media. I really hope so. I want to see 
mastheads, reflective of kitchens, reflective of consumers and readers. I don't want readers to feel like they can't connect to the recipes because they're self-serving recipes, they're elitist recipes, they're recipes that are tokenizing ingredients, calling you know Korean food like it's having a moment. It's trendy. That's mm-hmm. we need to have Korean people writing about Korean food, calling it what it is. Get rid of the italics. Get rid of the parentheses. I want to see more BIPOC editors and chiefs because even myself, a white cis man, I would feel like, wow, I have more of a chance of writing for that place now because they get it, because they give a shit, because they've had these issues. You know, they want to see more queer voices. So I really, I want to see this complete rearrangement. I want to see that happen. I want to see more rise and falls like Bon Appetit happen. And I want to see a more equitable industry. And on that note, yeah. Ethan, do you want to give us your take? Oh, my take on the direction of food media. Um, uh, uh, well, I'm, moment, and what this moment movement means. To yeah, you. I mean, I'm I'm outside food media, obviously. Uh, unlike the two of you, where where I'm not uh, writing or producing content, but 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 you're a podcaster, so you're in. Oh food yeah, that's media. true. I forgot about this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, you know, like as an entrepreneur, as a as a brand. Um, media has been a huge, uh, I should say, you know, um, with all shame, uh, the the existing structures of huge me- of food media have benefited my company. Um, and some of that has to do with uh, the access that I have had as a straight white man being able to have conversations with with other people who are like me or who um, are, are deferential to somebody with my identity in ways that they wouldn't be to others. Um, and that's, that's not nothing, right? Like that's a, that's been a significant factor in my company's ability to, to exist and grow. Um, and, and, uh, food media needs to, needs to change. There's no question at all about that. Uh, but I agree with what both of you just said. It is, it's going to be a slow and, and bumpy process to get it there. Um, yeah. Is it going to be slow though? Does it have to be slow? Because what, I don't know if you guys have been following the Twitter account of Tammy tech. I can't pronounce her last name, but it's at Tammy ETC. I think she showed like, it can be quick. It can be swift. Well, I mean, I think like what we saw with, with her tweets and then the resignation of uh, what's his name, Adam Rappaport, eight hours later, like that, uh, that person, that, that individual change happened quickly, but, but whether Bon Appetit as arguably the most financially, one of the most financially successful food media outlets is, is going to change fundamentally like that. I'm skeptical whether they're, whether that's going to happen on a systemic level there because they've been so successful, right? Because they've made, they've been so profitable um, right. in, in a, in a time, honestly, when so many food media companies are, are going under uh, right. the industry is drowning and they're, they're printing money. And so, uh, the the financial powers that be behind the company, how are they gonna, uh, like you know maybe they'll they'll be willing to lose a high profile figure to appease uh, some angry people, but but are they gonna change their profit model? I'm I, right. I don't know. I don't have a lot of hope for that, or especially not a lot of hope for that happening quickly. I think that's it comes down to hiring the right people in charge because they understand both sides of it. So get an editor in chief who understands the financial side, someone incredibly smart, but then also someone who is a minority because then they'll be able to make an equitable business model, you know? Exactly. I think like the fall of like one person who has a huge position could have a real ripple lasting effect. 
And let's not forget, because Tammy, when when the EIC was resigned, she then went after the the VP of entertainment for all of Condé Nast. And then he resigned. And then and there have been like at least three people um, that, you know, she has like kind of I'm not going to say targeted, but kind of like shed some light based off of information about different different things that had to do with them. So it really wasn't just like one person. It was it was like multiple people. And I think, you know, if you look at like the moneymaker that is Bon Appetit, it's the it's the entertainment side of things. So I think that was kind of like a it could potentially be a huge shift if they fill those roles, as Jesse said, with people who understand the business side and who also understand like the quote unquote value of diversity, because I think it's smart business. Actually, it's not just like, Oh yeah, let's, you know, let's, let's just be more fair or just, it's actually good business. You can actually expand your audience. If you are reaching people that look like what our country looks like. Yeah. That's the thing is I don't think, people see like the financial gain from it. I'm like, that's your audience. That's your readers. So it makes sense to appeal to your readers and stop making these like self-serving posts and recipes. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Quick rapid fire. Yeah, let's then. do it. Let's do it. Uh, Jesse, uh, what did you eat for lunch as a kid growing up? Oh my God. What did I eat? I guess peanut butter and jellies. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. Mid- Is that very Midwest? Midwestern? I feel like it feels Midwest. It what does. kind of bread did you eat it on? Wonder bread. Oh, that's bread. Midwest. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Okay, fair. <laughs> okay, Jesse, favorite ice cream flavor? Pistachio. Oh, uh, very in line with um your recipe contribution to Tasty Pride, which is a pistachio saffron cookie that has been on my to bake list, and it will get baked soon. <laughs> oh, yum! That sounds amazing. Um, Jesse, uh, most surprising recipe from the Tasty Pride cookbook, something that really kind of took you, took you, uh, what's the expression? Um, took you by surprise, I guess. Oh, oh, um, Von Diaz gave me this like Puerto Rican style pimento cheese dip. I'm like, wow, that sounds wild. And it's so good. Ooh, hi. Yeah. I love that. And it's like. The perfect combination of her cultures of like growing up in the South and being Puerto Rican. I love yeah, it. It's like so her. <laughs> um, Jesse, where can we find your book and where can we find you? So you can buy the book anywhere. Um, I would recommend going to IndieBound, the website. You can type in the title and it brings up all these different independent bookstores you can order from. Super cool. And you can find me just Jesse Sefchak, um on all socials. Um have fun spelling my last name. <laughs> Can you spell it for us, Jesse? Oh, God. Um, S-Z-E-W-C-Z-Y-K. Okay, so you guys can find him on social at J-E-S-S-E-S-Z-E-W-C-Z-Y-K or just look at the title of our podcast and you will see his name spelled out. Um, yeah, it's easier. You guys, <laughs> you guys can find us on social at Y Food um, Podcast and you can find me at Foodie in New York. And you can find me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. Um, you can always email us, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. We love to hear from you. Uh, thanks to Jess Kranjic, our awesome sound engineer. 
Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. And most of all, thanks to Jesse for joining us for this great conversation this week. Thank you for having me. I'm super honored. Yay. And we will see everyone next week. Bye. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.